I'm your host, Alexander Hefner, and you're listening to the audio podcast of The Open Mind. I'm Alexander Hefner, your host on The Open Mind. I'm delighted to welcome to the program today, Nira Yal. He is professor of bioethics and director of the Center for Population Level Bioethics at Rutgers. Welcome, Professor. Thanks so much for having me on the Here, let me ask you about the human challenge trials that have been underway for some time, uh, not since the beginning of the pandemic, but since, you know, for several months. Um, and I want to ask you for an update on, you know, based on your knowledge of what these human challenge trials have produced so far. Right now, the challenge trials are really only at the preliminary stage. They are doing what is uh, called the dose escalation study, in which the trialists um, start exposing participants at very low doses uh, of to the virus, and seeing they uh, do rounds of that. And with each round, they up it up a bit, the dosage, so that they can make sure that there are no injuries, that the dosage is um, fairly safe, so that they can eventually reach the level of uh, virus exposure that uh, would start giving them the scientific question, answers that they need. And right now, they're still at that in the UK. Professor, this is only occurring at Oxford in the UK so far. It's actually, the dose escalation is occurring at Imperial College, London, and Oxford University has uh, announced that it too will uh, engage in challenge trials. So later on, we are likely to have the real challenge trial, both in Imperial College and at Oxford University. This was contemplated before we saw the efficacy of the mRNA vaccine specifically, um, before they were tested, not with clinical trials, but in a full population. And now we know from the United States and Israel, or at least scientists believe that the mRNA vaccines, that is the Moderna and Pfizer vaccines, give folks some amount of immunity and are efficacious, again, to a degree that is going to be determined. Now that we know about the workability of, of those vaccines and ultimately the feasibility of vaccinating a public, do you think that doing these trials is, is still ethical and still necessary, the human challenge trials? Yes, um, we have uh, vaccines. Uh, one could also mention other authorized vaccines in America, J&J and uh, in the UK, AstraZeneca, but there remain open questions about them. Um, we don't have a so-called correlative, correlative protection for uh, these vaccines. And this is something we could elaborate on later. Uh, we don't know exactly how much they prevent infection and infectiousness in people who get them. We don't know how well they work in human populations against every strain of the virus. So there may well um, pop up a strain, maybe one has popped up already in Africa, uh, that um, is avoiding uh, vaccine protection. And so we will need to test uh, alternative vaccines, boosters in human populations to check how well they work. We also are not sure what, do what uh, regimens of these vaccines work best. 
you remember a debate about whether there should be a long wait um, between the doses. Maybe we can minimize and save vaccines by giving just uh, one dose of a vaccine that was planned with two doses in mind. All those things can be assessed uh, quite well with uh, challenge trials. In the UK, they're envisaging um, challenge trials that would assess uh, the duration of vaccine protection, what happens to people who have already been um, exposed to um, the virus in the past. A lot of uh, information that can still be gotten from challenge trials. What is the most critical information that you hope such trials would result in um, that would enable knowledge that we don't possess today? I think the are starting at this point very belatedly to be able to tell that the vaccines work well also to curb infections. We no longer need so much the answer to them. So, um, I wish we had that answer much earlier on. We could have prioritized vaccine distribution differently on that basis. Um, many decisions would have been different. At this point, I would say the most crucial information for bolstering protection is uh, in, in countries that have vaccines already is uh, checking the vaccine success against new viral strains, which evade the authorized vaccines uh, protection. And for countries that don't have good access to our vaccines, either because they're unavailable for you know, sad economic reasons or just because the delivery would be too complicated in the environments of these countries, uh, cold storage, uh, other issues. Uh, they need to develop other vaccines and in the development, development of these other vaccines, and there are many in the pipeline now which would have easier delivery and storage um, and, and perhaps better pricing, better availability, a crucial issue given how few of, of our, you know, fellow members of humanity have good access to the vaccines we now um, have in America. Um, to develop these other vaccines, uh, a challenge trial could help greatly. Right, ultimately, you know, in terms of the mechanics of the challenge trial, can you tell our viewers and listeners how it works and, and how it's guaranteed in your mind to be humane or ethical? You're giving people a dose of COVID that is a survivable, you know, theoretically a survivable dose that if they have a bad reaction, they might get sick, but they will still, you know, they will be well ultimately. So can you, can you take us through the mechanics? Because this human challenge trial emanating out of the UK was really unprecedented, the first of its kind internationally um, that society has ever experienced. In the simplest schema, the human challenge trial works as follows. Uh, a few dozen volunteers, a much, much smaller number than the numbers we talk about, you know, 60,000 people in some of the field trials to get the vaccines that we uh, authorized in the fall. So here we're talking about a few dozen volunteers um, give their consent to uh, the following scheme. They are um, randomized to receive either the vaccine or control. So a placebo like it. Uh, we had in the trials in full, or perhaps another vaccine to which you want to compare this vaccine or another dosing regimen for this vaccine, if that's what you want to compare, you know, some control. And then everyone is exposed to the virus. In the typical way, it's kind of, you know, 
a swab in the nose with a little virus culture on it. If there are very different results between the active arm, the, the arm you wanna check, the vaccine arm and the control arm, you say, okay, this the difference between them make a lot of difference. A lot of people got infected here and not many people got infected here. Uh, if there isn't much difference, um, the presumed conclusion is it doesn't make much difference. Say this vaccine is not much better than placebo. This dosing regimen is not much better than uh, what you're comparing it to. This is the design. How do you keep this safe? I mean, you know, you're exposing people to something that kills millions around the world. The main key to doing that, you, there are you know, a lot of medical care is offered and safety and a lot of doctors. The main key, the simplest thing is subject selection. You simply by focusing only on people who are young and without the comorbidities that also up the chance for severe outcomes, we can calculate how much that would uh, increase safety in the study. And simply that factor, according to a recent article um, published in uh, Clinical Infectious Disease, would make these trials much safer than, this is my comparison, uh, than 100 times safer, or uh, depending on, the, they had kind of a margin of uh, the, about the risk of, of uh, the challenge trials, or alternatively, much safer than 500 times safer, then living liver lobe, uh, living right liver lobe donation. That's an intervention that doctors offer consenting adults um, routinely, oftentimes talking about it as low risk, but whether or not it's low risk or high risk, we already agree that an adult person can with full consent um, do this thing, donate a right liver lobe, which has a one in 200 chance of killing them, and has a fair chance of causing uh, injuries. But we think, because for somebody else it would mean life, it's okay to approach them with that request. It's not unethical. These trials are way, you know, two orders of magnitude, or perhaps more, perhaps three, safer than this routine intervention. And they would help save, if you think about the scale of a pandemic, would help save not one life, but if we expedite response, if we improve response, we're talking about easily thousands and thousands of lives saved. We're in this period in the United States of, of I, I would not call it a, the honeymoon period, but a, a period of, of peak vaccination distribution and um, immunity building. And it remains to be seen here if ultimately vaccinating 50 to 60% of the American public will be sufficient to returning to public settings in the fashion we were prior to the emergence of COVID-19. We, we just don't really know yet because we don't know the answers to some of those questions that I think you hope these challenge trials will produce the answers to. I mean, one of them is the duration of immunity. We were told during the invention of the mRNA vaccinations and these vaccines that they were not like the smallpox vaccine or the polio vaccine in that it could give you lifelong immunity. Um, we were told this was a unique specimen, a unique kind of vaccine. And I 
wonder what your reflection is at this moment, scientifically and bioethically, because we are in this moment where the CDC has issued the unmasking guidance, and yet only 50% at most has been doubly vaccinated, fully vaccinated of, of the American people. Internationally, COVID continues to be a conflagration and disaster in many countries that have not vaccinated their citizens. So it, it leaves us in this rather precarious and, and unusual position. Um, and, and I just wonder what your assessment of this stage is. John Charles can give information about the duration of immunity more accurately than field trials. Basically in a field trial, the way it works is you give people vaccine versus control and then you send them back to their ordinary lives and you're waiting for enough of them to get exposed naturally. You don't know when exactly they got exposed, how they got exposed, how much they got exposed. Charles trials are very, very controlled. They, you know, everybody's in the medical facility. You know exactly when they got exposed and it's very easy to assess the duration of immunity. Uh, you can actually, people are talking about challenge trials where you will do a sort of second challenge sometime later to test whether their immunity lasts. So yes, uh, they could provide these answers um, quite um, credibly. Um, to me, from I, I work in a public health school, the most urgent questions uh, remain these uncovered global populations um, and Americans if our vaccines start failing, say against a new strain. Right. But, um, I'm thinking about the big numbers. That's what I sure. I, I think has the, the, the biggest ethical justification, ethical urgency. And I, I would love for us to answer these questions in particular. If you think of the trial stages of what's occurring right now, you also have a few companies that are developing oral, uh, so a pill, um, an oral vaccine. Um, it, it has not really been adopted anywhere yet, um, but I believe they're trial participants or, in, you know, there are, there are companies producing this. Um, but the other question that might be resolved through the human challenge trials or other scholarship is this question of a medical intervention outside of vaccinations. Um, you know, the, there were several antiviral drugs proposed to work and ultimately they were really not successful in most of their implementation. So, um, you know, we're, we've been told for, for decades or, you know, centuries since we've known the difference between viral and bacterial illness, that it's very hard to, to make an effective antiviral drug. Um, the question is, can you ultimately make something if not of a, an oral vaccination, um, some sort of over-the-counter oral medicine that could, um, you know, reduce COVID infectiousness and make this much more treatable. In principle, Charles trials could answer these questions about treatment. It's ethically a harder sell. Um, the How so? The safety, my, my assurance about the ethics of these trials is anchored mainly in what I told you earlier. I think that by recruiting young and healthy people, we are very unlikely to have people who develop severe disease. To have credible answers as to whether a treatment saves your life when you develop severe disease, 
you need for a lot of people to develop severe disease. So you need to start, I don't know, uh, maybe recruiting people who are not as young, not as healthy. Uh, and that starts being harder uh, to justify ethically because then you're introducing serious risks. So the good thing and the bad thing about challenge trials is um, you are not going to have many cases, in all likelihood, no case of severe disease in the trial. By far, that's the likelier scenario. That also means that you can't learn much about what to do when there is a severe disease. You need to learn that from other things. Right, well, do you think that the at-home testing availability combined with the vaccine, vaccination rates increasing in the US and other countries will be enough to ultimately extinguish COVID? Because if you have that combination of the at-home testing and vaccinations, then you're, you'll be able to ascertain if you have COVID at a certain stage when it is treatable and you're more protected, of course, if you were vaccinated and you happen to have a breakthrough infection. But do you see enough interventions, medically speaking, that you believe COVID can be eradicated? There was this question about whether COVID will ever be eradicated and, um, and whether we have to live with it as, a, as another kind of chronic illness or flu-like seasonal illness. And is the jury out on what the answer to that question? I'm not an epidemiologist, I'm an ethicist. Um... From what I read, the epidemiologists increasingly believe that we cannot anymore eradicate um, COVID. Um, some of the reasons why we don't have higher vaccination rates in America have to do with population behavior and who knows how people will behave about testing. When people get to test at home, sometimes that's triggered by they're already being symptomatic, but we know that COVID is uh, transmitted even before people are symptomatic, so it often catches it too late. Who knows? Um, I know in my home country, Israel, um, they don't have 100% vaccination, but they have high percent vaccination and COVID has plummeted. Uh, not so much thanks to testing, but mainly thanks to these vaccines, which are the mRNA technology, which is just working incredibly well. And presumably that's one of the cases that show us, presumably also in curbing transmission not just in protecting the individual who got the vaccine from developing severe disease. Since you look at the entire globe, what do you think would be kind of the, the ethical standards, if you will, now for you know, countries that are 50% vaccinated or better to contribute to help vaccinate countries that are you know, suffering, that continue to have mass deaths daily. Um, is there some kind of ethical consensus that you've reached on the public policy that makes sense so that if it's not eradicated, uh, COVID is at least managed effectively in America and in Europe and in India and in Brazil and you know everywhere? It's both in everybody's interests and um, a strong ethical obligation for everyone to protect everyone around the world from COVID. It's foolhardy not to share our vaccines um, generously with uh, nations that don't have enough uh, because A, uh, while the 
viruses circulating there and replicating itself is where it has chances to um, mutate and potentially develop that variant that I'm concerned about that will evade our vaccine protection. So it really might come back to, to bite us uh, if, if we don't um, help uh, roll out the vaccines globally as fast as possible. It's also important for our economy to open up markets around the world for our products. Um, and it's a strong ethical obligation. I mean, look at the horrors that are going ongoing in India right now, in Peru, and increasingly in Vietnam, in Nepal, Brazil. Terrible, terrible situations and um, an obvious uh, ethical case for doing um, a lot about them as much as we can really. When you speak to fellow ethicists on this question, is, is there a specific regimen that you're imploring? I mean, is there a, a specific way of, of kind of calculating um, this and couching it ethically in terms of you know, what countries ought to be first on that list? Um, and you know, some of it probably is correlated with the variant distribution and you know where variants have a greater risk of not just being imported within that country further but around the world there has been work um, published last summer in summer in science magazine that said that the main criterion should be not the one used by covax and um, uh, an initiative associated with who and gavi but um, rather the following one um, don't just give it proportionally to every country. Canada doesn't need any more vaccines. Canada has hoarded way more than its population needs in vaccines, uh, as did the US and other rich countries. Um, instead, um, distribute it based on the need, the medical need of the population, uh, given, for example, infection rates, given predictions of future infection uh, rates in the population. Um, incidence rates. Um, so um, that to me is an approach that makes more sense than just giving it, you know, according to the number of citizens. Um, right. Going to further details, uh, you have an interesting propos proposal to subject it also specifically to the issue of the variants, which affect have greater externalities, if you will, for other nations. Um, and uh, one could fine-tune it in many additional ways. For example, just one important consideration is African countries um, are said not to have had very um, high uh, incidence so far, but in some of these countries, it seems just to be a matter of under-representation of the numbers. So in fact, there is more COVID there than we assume. So you can't just uh, read the numbers off of what the health ministry assumes the numbers are. Right. Next question. And there's also a question about the ethical evaluation of distributing in a country that is unaccountable for its COVID numbers. Like, do you trust um, distribution in the hands of a population? Peru is an example of vastly undercounting its death toll, um, only to be, you know, demonstrated as one of the most um, fatal counts in in the world um but but reporting that many months later in terms of an accurate uh count of fatalities let me ask you this before we conclude 
you can't discuss bioethics today without considering the consequence of gain of function research, because there is not a clear understanding of the origin of COVID-19. You know, the, uh, initially it was said by many scientists, this crossed over from an animal, um, from a bat to another animal to a human. Now, with the absence of any animal, which they did have in, in uh, MERS, a Middle Eastern, or SARS, the original COVID in, uh, emanating from, from Asia, um, there, there is no real scientific evidence of a lab leak, but there's also no scientific evidence that it came from you know, a natural source. So we're, we believe that Wuhan and its institute um, did engage in this gain of function research that can put populations at greater risk of becoming infection, infectious as a result of higher risk research. Um, I just wanted your ethical snap uh, understanding of gain of function research and, and whether it is ethical or whether it should be halted. I'm not going to commit in any way to the origins of uh, this pandemic. I don't know the answer. Um, in general, about gain of function research, um, my position is that it's more dangerous than contributing to safety. In a word, um, you can use it to develop safety precautions, but they would be often very specific to the variant that would attack you, et cetera. And, and the chance, the variant that you develop is the one that otherwise would have attacked the population and therefore that any protections that you develop to fight well against this variant are gonna work well against future independent attacks on the population by a new this or that strain is relatively low. More pronounced is the probability that there would be a leak from uh, the lab that some terrorist We're, we're, we're out of time data. here, but I just want to ask you very quickly, is gain of function research more high risk? Is gain of function research more dangerous than a human challenge trial? Oh, for sure. Yeah, um, I mean, I just want to put it in perspective because there was a, a large a large chorus of people right. who said right. human challenge trials are, are are wrong, they're ethically wrong, they're dangerous. But in reality, I would agree with you, and you're, bringing, you're approaching it from the scientific and ethical lens that that uh, one is is far more a danger. What Kevin Esfeld at MIT calls an information hazard. Um, what, when you're seeing what kind of infections you can build in in effect bioengineering. Um, that is dangerous. Nirayal, thank you for your insight today. We really appreciate it. Thank you so much, Alexander. Please visit the Open Mind website at 13.org slash openmind to view this program online or to access over 1,500 other interviews. And do check us out on Twitter and Facebook at Open Mind TV for updates on future programming.